So as you're finding James chapter 1, um, just as a reminder, if you have a roll sheet in front of you, if you would go ahead and sign that, uh, that would be great. Um, I mentioned last week when we went through the first eight verses of James chapter 1 that probably more than any other book in the New Testament, James reminds us of wisdom literature. Now, if you were here with us in the spring, you know when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes that wisdom literature is known for repetition. So they say things over and over, sometimes in slightly different ways to bring home a certain emphatic point. And so James is going to do the same thing. Last week, we talked about trials and temptations. This week, we're going to talk about trials and temptations, among other things. There are themes that get repeated and pop up over and over again. And that's a good thing because it shows you and me that we need to be regularly reminded of truths that we already know. So one thing that may be helpful for us to think about before we even get started is in the Christian life, we don't graduate from being forgetful. All of us learn things and grow according to those things and then often forget those things. And we need to be reminded of them time after time after time. So if that's you this morning, if you're like, man, I just have to be reminded of these things that I feel like I should know all the time, you're in good company because that's part of the Christian life. So when we read God's word over and over and over, you may think, I already know this. I've already learned this. I've already studied this passage. I already know this book. But it's good for us to be reminded over and over because we are quick to forget very important things. So this morning, we have a lot to cover. I want to give you some time to discuss. So let's just jump in and see three big points that we're going to discuss this morning. But we'll start in verse 9. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are grateful for our time together this morning. We're grateful to dive into your word and to hear from your Holy Spirit what you have for us in this hour, on this day, in this season of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know you, to pursue you, and to remain steadfast in the faith that you have given us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to rightly exalt and boast in the right things at the right time. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to know and to do all this and more. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So James in these first three verses recognizes what we know to be true. He's writing, remember, to the dispersion, these believers who are dispersed throughout uh, uh, the known world. And he's writing to two kinds of people here in verse 9, the lowly and the rich. So what James knows to be true is what we know to be true. And that is that the church is both socially and economically diverse. There are some in our midst, as in every church, who are well off financially. There are some who are not. 
in the life of the church as opposed to any other institution in the world, those two kinds of people, if they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to that body of believers as equals. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you have a high status or a low status, you come before the body of Christ the same. Money and prestige does not make somebody more fit to come before the presence of God. Now here in verses 9 through 11, James tells us that whether we are lowly or poor or rich, we have something to boast about. That is to brag about, to make much of in front of other people. Now that's odd because if you've read your Bible and if you've read Romans chapter 3, you know that Paul tells us that because of the gospel, our boasting is, the word he uses in 3.27 is excluded. That is, you don't boast anymore. You boasted in things before you became a believer. Now you're a believer and you don't get to boast anymore. You don't get to make much of yourself anymore. And sometimes people say that James and Paul are on different wavelengths. When you read the Bible, some might even say that they contradict each other. And there are some difficulties for us to address as we walk through uh, the book of James as to how do we make sense of that in light of what Paul has said, because we know that God's word doesn't contradict itself. We know that the scriptures are clear. They're sufficient. They're they're cohesive. They're, They're telling one story from the one true God for us to know him and to follow after him. So Paul isn't telling us to do something that James isn't telling us and vice versa. So what's going on? Well, here's the first point. We boast in the gospel. We boast in the gospel. Paul is talking about boasting in our own achievements and glory. What Paul is talking about in Romans 3 is boasting or bragging or making much of yourself. What James is calling us to do is to boast in something outside of ourselves. He's calling us to make much of something that isn't of us. He's calling us to boast in the gospel. So if you are lowly or poor, if your means are small, if you are lowly in this world, you can now boast in how the Lord has given you value that nothing this world can touch. He's brought you from death to life. He's adopted you into his family. He's promised you the wonders of eternal life. We'll get to that a little bit later. And if you are rich in the world's eyes, if you have means, if you are well off financially, if you have social status, you can now boast, James says, in your humiliation. That is, boast in the truth that you have found, that your worldly riches do not help your standing before the throne of grace. That you might think in the world's eyes you are high and lifted up, but before the Lord you come lowly. The gospel is the great leveler of humanity and leads us to make much of the right things. We exalt not ourselves as believers, but the Lord and the good news that he shares both with us and then through us shares with other people. And verses 10 and 11 just serve as an illustration of this truth. So he says in verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, 
he will pass away. All people, whether poor or rich, will meet the same end. If Jesus tarries like the flower of the grass that gets scorched by the sun, we will wither and we will die. That sounds very Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? What's your life? You're just going to die one day. (laughs) Uh, So get ready for that. James is telling us similar things. Even the rich cannot escape their divinely appointed end. So you and I as believers who recognize that for the vast, vast majority, maybe virtually all of us in this room, in the eyes of the world, like in the whole world, we are rich. We are rich. If you have a place to sleep tonight and if you're not really worried about whether or not you're going to eat lunch today and the clothes that you're wearing today are relatively clean, in the eyes of the world, you are rich. If you didn't have to walk here to come to church, you, you are rich in the eyes of the world. But even in our context, if you find yourself identifying maybe as more lowly than others, whether you are a place of lowliness or a place of high exaltation in the eyes of our culture, wherever God has us, we can boast not in ourselves, but in the gospel, which frees us from valuing ourselves and others by the world's standards. Now, you may hear me say that and go, oh yeah, I absolutely believe that. But think about how you interact in the world. Think about how you interact among your peers. Think about how you think when you look at social media. We are making judgments all the time, comparing ourselves to other people. And you may not think when you make those comparisons that I'm making value judgments, but over time, you start to create in your mind and your heart a set of values. If I see these things and this kind of look, And this kind of status, that's good. If I don't see that, it's not good. And over time, one of two things is going to happen. You will find yourself in despair because you're going to look around at the world of the internet, which isn't real at all, and say that you don't have what those things are that you like, that you value, that you think are important. Or you will find yourself arrogant and proud because you look around and say, man, I'm doing awesome. Look at all the things that I've got. Look at all the value that I have. Look at all how much better I am than these other people. You may not say that out loud, but over time, you keep making these comparisons. This is where your heart will go. And what James is saying is, don't play that game. If you want to find something to boast in, if you want to find something to exalt, if you want to find something to make much of with your life, with your words, with your actions, let it be the thing that has real value. And that's the gospel. Because that gospel helps us to see that we all have value. So then if I make much of Christ, if I make much of his gospel, it will lead me to rightly value everyone around me. So boast in the gospel. Don't find yourself valuing ourselves and others by the world's standards. Okay, we keep going. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In verses 12 through 15, we return to a point James made just last week at the beginning of his letter. But here he gives us more information and encouragement. James says that a man or a person who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. So the point we're thinking about right now is remain steadfast in your faith. Remain steadfast in your faith. Again, this is kind of a reprise or a repetition of what we saw last week, but it bears repeating because James is writing about it again. That language, blessed is the man, should remind you of perhaps two places in Scripture, maybe more, but at least two, right? The first place it should remind you of is Psalm chapter 1, where Psalm 1 exists as this kind of uh, foundational point for us to understand what's going on in all of the Psalms. And what's going on in all of the Psalms is this. There are two ways to live. You can live the life of the blessed man, the righteous man, or you can live the life of the wicked. One of these is going to lead to life, and one of these is going to lead to judgment. You read all 150 Psalms, and that thread runs straight through the Psalms every time. You can either live the life of the blessed man, the righteous man, who may endure hardship and sorrow and frustration, but ultimately his life will end in eternal life. Or you can live the life of the wicked and perhaps experience some joys and pleasures here on earth, but your end is destruction. And so James is calling to mind that language so that we might see what he's about to say should line up with what kind of life do I want to live if I want life? So blessed is the man. The second place that it should remind you of is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives us a list of Beatitudes or Proverbs for remembering what a life of blessing really looks like in the kingdom of heaven. So we don't have time to turn there, but just think about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Or blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Often, Jesus says something like this, blessed is the man who does or endures this hard thing, for they get a reward. So you want that reward? You want that life? You want to be filled with righteousness? You want to have the kingdom of heaven given to you by God? Then live this way. And by living this way, Jesus says, you are already blessed because you know where your hope truly is. You know what promises are yours. You know that what you endure in this life is worth that reward that's coming. So why is the steadfast believer blessed according to James chapter 1? Well, look with me in verse 12. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. Now, in your mind, you might be thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die and, and Jesus is going to give me a crown and it's going to say life on it. That's not what we have in mind here. Another way of translating the crown of life is 
the reward of resurrection. And guys, there are more seats over here if you would like to just walk across and sit down. That'd be great. Thanks. The crown of life could be translated the reward of resurrection. And God has promised, according to this passage, he has promised to give this reward to those who love him. So look at that again. Look at the text. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I don't miss this. God promises. And God is faithful. As we'll see later on in our passage this morning, he is trustworthy and faithful. And he does not break his promises. So if God has promised the reward of resurrection, the crown of life to those who love him, then I want to be somebody who loves God. Because God is always faithful to his promise. He's always faithful to his word. Now, how do I get to be a kind of person who loves God? Well, John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Loved us. So here's the good news. Let's put all this together. God shows his love to us. He gives us the gift of faith. He sustains us in the trials that he brings before us and then promises to reward those who remain steadfast resurrection life. Now what's missing in that whole strategy and plan? What's missing is your ability to mess it up. If God is the one who loves first, if he is the one who grants faith, if he is the one that holds you in his hands under trial, and if he is the one who promises to reward those who remain under trial, then we can't mess this up. There's no promise that we can cause God to break. We can rest in him as we strive to be faithful. Now, God is really calling us by the Holy Spirit through James for us to remain steadfast, to be faithful, to be holy, to be obedient to his word. But not in a way that we should feel some kind of impossible burden that if I don't do enough good things today, God might remove his love from me and remove that promise. No, he's saying, I have already done all of the work and I'm holding you in my hands. Nothing can separate me from you. Nothing can separate you from my love. So how might we respond to that good gift of God? We remain steadfast. We remain faithful. Now we will all fall short. And none of us are perfect. None of us are going to uh, be free from sin this side of heaven. So what's going on when that happens? What's going on as believers when we fall short? What's going on in our hearts and our minds when we sin against God? Well, James already told us that God tests us last week 
But here he clarifies that he does not tempt us. So here's a truth for you to just bore down deep into your soul that you can hold on to for the rest of your life. And as it comes up again and again, you can be reminded of this truth. God never, ever wants you to sin. God never is leading you to disobey him. He is never desiring that you would fall short from the glory of God. He is never luring you and enticing you towards unrighteousness. God is always good. He is always faithful. He's, his ways are always good. He is not the tempter. Which means verses 14 and 15 are vitally important for us to understand and grasp together. James says, if it's not God who tempts us, then what tempts us? Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desire. James says our desires are what lure and entice us, like using bait on a hook to try to reel in a fish. All of us have hearts that are bent towards inordinate or distorted desires. We may long for something good and right, like friendship or safety or rest. Those aren't bad things to want. Those aren't bad things to desire. But, but something happens in our sinful hearts that twists and distorts and perverts these otherwise good desires and change them into idols. John Calvin is famous for saying that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. So as soon as we realize, ah, oh, I'm idolizing something more than God, and we put that thing to death, our hearts are really clever and really good at creating new things for us to long for instead of God. But an idol is something that I'm willing to sin in order to get. Or something I'm willing to sin so that I can keep. You with me there? An idol is something that I'm willing to sin in order to get. So if, if I want friendship, that's not a bad desire. But if it's like, I'm willing to lie and gossip about these people so that that girl will be my friend. Now it's an idol. Now we've said, I'm willing to disobey God for her sake or for the sake of that relationship or that friendship. Notice. These internal temptations for these desires, James says, the things that are happening inside of us, in our hearts, conceive and give birth to sin. In other words, our sinful desires produce sinful actions. Don't get confused. Our distorted internal desires are themselves sin. But what James is trying to show us is that the internal, broken, sinful desires of our heart are often not seen by other people. We carry these inside. We hold them close to our soul. We, we don't show the world the brokenness of our desires and our passions. But ultimately, those desires lead to action. Transgression. These actions that other people can see. That sin is born 
Without any solution, our sin will fully grow and bring forth death. And the trajectory of the world around us is that everyone apart from Christ is oriented by, directed by, under the slavery of their sinful desires that produce sinful actions that will result in death under the weight of their sin. And that kind of death apart from Christ leads to eternal death. That's the trajectory of the world. As good as it might seem on the outside for us looking at it, the only path it leads to is death. That's what James says. So as John Owen famously wrote, we ought to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And we do this in different ways. So think about this. We have these inordinate desires that bring forth sinful actions that will ultimately lead to death. Well, we can trust in Christ, right? We believe the gospel and that saves us from that eternal death. It doesn't mean we just immediately stop sinning or having sinful desires, but our, our end, our eternal state is now secured in him. This is how we fight against sin. We believe the gospel or we repent after transgression. We do something sinful. We are, are arrogant and proud. We lust after a person. We commit some kind of sinful action we repent, we turn from our sin and go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want this. This is the result of a sinful desire of my sinful heart. And I don't want that. I want to be holy and righteous before you. We can repent before transgression as we wrestle with our desires and say, God, I have these desires. I, you know that I don't want to do these things. I don't enjoy doing these things, but my heart is deceitful, and it, it longs for things that I don't long for. So we bring those to the Lord as well. And we can practice the fruit of self-control and the transforming of our minds and hearts that change our desires from that which is idolatrous and sinful to those things that honor God. But don't miss the point. If all you do is deal with your actions, then you will never get to the root of the problem of your heart. Does that make sense? If, if all you do is talk to other people and think about, maybe talk to your parents about, I do this and I don't do this and I do this, then you're not really getting after the root of the problem. You're dealing with symptoms. You're dealing with the things that your desires have produced, but you're not dealing with the desire. And in order for you to actually have real life change, you've got to get to the heart of the matter. You've got to get to the level of desire. And I'm just going to say that, maybe this is discouraging to you. I don't mean for it to be. I mean for it to be encouraging. That movement of dealing with your heart, of dealing with what is going on in your desires, not just in your actions, that is foundational, basic Christianity. That's not graduate level followers of Jesus. That's immediate. 
That's what does it look like for Jesus to be my Lord? It means I submit my heart to him. What does that look like? Knowing what my heart is like. So that might sound discouraging, but I'm saying that to encourage you because if you are a follower of Christ, that means by the, by the Lord's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do this. You really can get to the root of the matter of what's going on in your heart, but it is really, really hard to do by yourself. That kind of work is exceedingly difficult to do alone. It's almost as if the Lord knew that and gave you, when you became a believer, a family of faith, a body of Christ, people in your life who also love Jesus and follow his word, who can come alongside you and help you. So for me, my besetting desires, these things that I constantly go back to that produce all sorts of idolatries and sinful actions in my life, I know I have myriads upon myriads, but there are two that are pretty common to me in my life. And those are the desires for comfort and the desire for control. So for me, if I'm in a situation where I don't feel like I'm in control, my heart just gets out of whack really quickly. And that's not an excuse for sin, but it's, it's me knowing how my heart is bent. Or if, if I'm in a situation where I'm just not comfortable then I'm more liable to sin or to act sinfully in order to try to get some comfort for myself. Or if, I'm, if I am comfortable and I perceive that there's something going on over here, there's something going on in this situation in my life that's gonna lead me into discomfort, I might be liable to sin in order to stay away from that. Students, that's hard to figure out on your own. I had godly people in my life who were speaking into my life and seeing the blind spots of my life that I couldn't normally uh, clearly see on my own to say, hey, you, you seem to wrestle here and here. Have you ever considered why those things might be connected? Maybe your besetting desires are similar. Maybe they're different. Doing the work to learn about yourself is good work. And there is help for you. Perhaps it's rooted in some kind of sin pattern that you've struggled with as long as you can remember. Perhaps it's due to you being sinned against in some way that has warped your mind and heart to think things that are not true and are not real about yourself or about other people. No matter where you are, you have people to go to. You can talk to me, you can talk to Rasha, you can talk to one of your leaders so that you can start to learn, okay, how does my heart work? And if I'm trying to bend it towards holiness, towards Christ-likeness, towards godliness, where am I bending it from? That's vital to know. James thinks to think so as well. And James also gives us the basic foundational action moving forward for all of this. What do we do in light of what we have heard? James says, no God, no God. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth 
by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So third point, we're gonna land the plane pretty quickly here. And that is know the father of lights. You wanna have victory in the midst of your temptations and hardships. You need to know God. You wanna know how to rightly boast in the right things. You need to know God. Do you wanna remain steadfast in your faith under trial? You need to know God. So James continues here with an endearing encouragement. He's talking in verse 16 to those whom he considers beloved brothers. And that word brothers is, is, a, is a generic sibling term. So it's brothers and sisters. So girls don't feel left out. He's saying, my beloved siblings, my beloved brothers and sisters, the people with whom I'm living out this life together with, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. And I share his heart. I don't want any of you to be deceived, whether by false teachers or ignorance or sinful hearts that we all have that distort the truth. As we learn about God, according to his word, we grow in our confidence of standing firm in our faith. We grow in our trust in his promises. We grow in our understanding of what is going on when the hardships of life come our way. And so James gives us a few wonderful truths about God for us to consider when we think about not being deceived, remaining steadfast, recognizing what happens when we are tempted. First, God is the giver of every good gift. That means that he is good, that he is generous, that he is kind, and that we can trust that what he gives us in life is never to tempt us or harm us. Notice, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from him. So don't miss what he's saying here. All the good in your life, all the blessings, all the grace, all the wonder, all the joy, all the provision, everything is from him. Which means even the difficult things, if we have eyes to see, can be responded to with a heart that is grateful to God. Second, God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This means that God is, the fancy word, immutable. He is immutable. He is unchanging. The lights of our world change. They come on, they turn off, they don't last. And in James's mind, what he probably has in mind are the stars and the sun and the moon. These are the lights of heaven, the things that grant light to their world. But they are not always trustworthy. The stars move around. The moon waxes and wanes. The sun half the day is hidden behind the world. And even sometimes it gets eclipsed by other things. Our earth shifts and our recognition of the light changes. But the father of lights is always who he is. His radiance and glory are unstoppable. And so we can rest assured that his love and his goodness towards us today are everlasting because he does not change. Third, he brought us forth by the word of truth. James says, do you want to know who God is? Then look at what he has done. 
we have been given new life by him. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. He did not leave us in our own frustrations and pains and brokenness and sins. He sent his own son, Jesus, the word of God incarnate to be tempted as we all are and yet remain without sin. Jesus came to bear the wrath of God for all of our broken desires, all of our transgressions and overturn death itself. God has revealed himself for us to know him. And that happens when we turn from our sin and trust in his offer of life. When we believe this gospel, we now have something to boast in because now we can boast in him.